Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Everybody. Welcome back to Podside Picnic, and we've got a special episode here. In addition to having uh, me and uh, the the charming and talented Connor on the line with us, we also have a special guest, the uh, the lead singer and songwriter from Weedus, uh, Brendan. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Brendan. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, I, I don't know why we did this, but I'm really glad we did. We're not really going the science fiction route today. We are going to be talking about uh, one of my favorite movies from growing up, The Last Dragon. Uh, <laughs> Connor, did you ever watch this movie? No, this is the first time I've seen it, and I forced my parents to watch it because I'm visiting them right now. And uh, <laughs> they, I think we all had three very different views of the movie, but I want to say I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so thank you, Brennan, for suggesting it. Wait, you're saying that you had three different views yourself, your mother, and your father? Yeah, I think, you know, just, uh, I think partly because, like, they're, you know, that was, they were in their mid-20s when this came out in 1985. And so for them, it was mostly an 80s nostalgia trip. And they were not enjoying the uh, the sort of campy romp as much as I was. But, like, I'm totally down for that. I actually really enjoyed this movie and loved the aesthetics it was playing with. So, you know. Cool. Um, well, <laughs> I was just going to say, let's let's go with that. Uh, th- this this movie suggestion was your idea, Brendan. What what drew you to this film? What made you pick it? Well, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know you guys were dealt in science fiction like right off the bat. But um, but you asked me what my favorite. I think you asked me on Twitter what my favorite movie was, and I said it was this. Um, uh, I I chose it. Uh, I've, I've I've loved this movie since the first time I saw it. Um, I think I think the reason is is because uh, first of all, it's a really really good music movie. Because it's uh, it's a Barry Gordy production, uh, Motown Motown Records put put the film out, I think. Um, and it's uh, um, you know in the eighties, uh, the mid eighties, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five. I was ten, uh, eleven years old. Karate Kid was out, and Karate Kid was about this kid from New Jersey who had to move to. L.A. and didn't fit in, and the bullies there were different and weird and stuff, but. The Last Dragon was a sort of a, a, a New York movie, right? It was set in New York City. It was in my town. It was like it was like here. And it felt, the characters felt a little bit more contemporarily sort of relevant and real to me. Um, I also was around this time beginning to discover glimpses of, of hip-hop, Run DMC, uh, LL Cool J, um, and I was sort of more into that at the at that moment, um, in terms of just music and culture. My New York pride was beginning. My pride in New York diversity kind of thing was beginning to to creep into my life. So as a as like a young identity. So I I I was much more into this film. It also has a supernatural element. So it is a little bit science fictiony, I guess. Um, and it was it was super corny and camp, and I remember thinking like that's fine too, you know, um, because his uh, Tymac, the the actor who who played uh, Bruce Leroy, was um, <laughs> every time I hear that name, I crack up, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was so much dorkier than Daniel Larusso. But somehow he he made more sense. I don't know why, but he made a lot more sense. Like he was immersed in in this Chinese culture that he was uh, learning about, and um, and his family thought he was nuts. And like it was way, it's way more, it's way way more uh, in depth in terms of an outcast um, finding his mm-hmm. way 
than than I think uh, that I think the Karate Kid even even kind of came to. You know, um, it, I think that I think that there are times like like miss even in like the way that the Karate Kid kind of presents Mr. Miyagi sometimes with the stupid like Asian flute stuff um, is sort sure. of like I don't know, kind of like a little bit racist, like kind of like a little weird, like not, not overtly racist, but just kind of like stereotypical, you know, again, another yeah, American definitely. movie with like, like, you know, Asian like trappings, you know, like not, not really, but this kid, Bruce Leroy, he was paying the price for genuinely immersing himself in another culture in the last dragon that was the source of his sort of like ongoing friction with his family. And yeah, I thought that was kind of, kind of cooler for some reason. It registered better when I was like 11, you know? Um, well, and it is really Daniel LaRusso in, in uh, the karate kid movies desperately wants to be cool. And a lot of ways like martial arts is like his vehicle to become cool. And I think you're absolutely right. Like Bruce Leroy does not give a shit about that in any way whatsoever. He's just trying to become a martial artist. Right. And that's a lot more respectable. Yeah. He's embraced, he's embraced full, the full dorkness of, of caring more about and being more interested in the culture. Cause it's like, look, I mean, look what they do in, in the last dragon. Like they throw all of this contemporary street culture at, at, at Leroy, at Bruce Leroy. And he does not pick it up ever. Like not once ever. Does he ever get involved? Does he ever respond? Does he ever think it's cool? And even eventually his little brother who is just, completely frustrated with what an, a dork his his older brother is he finally comes to be like oh no 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 my brother is is his ident he's identifying with something that we that we're not familiar with not the other way around it's not him not familiar with our culture it's it's us not familiar with his you know and it, it, it that's a better way than uh, for me, then like, like Daniel LaRusso needing to fit in in California and needing to learn the right karate so he can fit in. And like, I think that kind of sucks, you know, yeah. um, if I could punish everyone with my hands, they'll like me. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, but but the thing, see, the thing that that Leroy is looking for the entire film is not acceptance. He's looking for the master. Like he's looking for like, he's looking for something nobody understands but him, maybe him, you know, it's a much more solitary protagonist framing than, than, uh, than the social world of Daniel Russo. And I, I well, was it's almost like a spirit journey. It is. It is a spiritual, it's a spiritual identity journey and it's, and it's taken in solitude on purpose, almost like he's a monk. You know, like, and that's kind of, that's, that's where they're getting, that's what they're getting at. They're getting at like, like, it's a better, I think for me anyway, maybe I'm speaking in, in American, you know, Caucasian ignorance, but. Well, feel, well, I, welcome aboard to our podcast, man. Cause yeah, that's totally, what we're all about. Totally. But what I'm saying <laughs> is, is that like, is that like, it seemed to me that the, that the last dragon is examining a culture in depth. Is, is more is, is saying, no, there's more to don't just think that this like you just learned karate and that's going to make your life. That's you, you know, you mastered the part of Asian culture that's that's socially applicable in American <laughs> high schools. You know, like that's not mm -hmm. what it, that's not what The Last Dragon is doing. The Last Dragon is a much deeper dive into into um, uh, alienation and, uh, you know, solitary sojourn toward yourself kind of thing, you know. Um, you utilizing another culture's trappings and, and disciplines, but, but to, to full effect, I believe. And they, of course the supernatural thing is it's a movie, you know, <laughs> like have fun. Right. Um, so could we talk about Eddie Arcanian for a second here? Because yeah. I mean, as the villain, he sort of embodies everything that, uh, Bruce Leroy does not 
Like he 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 can effectively manipulate the culture to his advantage. He like even he can take his completely talentless girlfriend and make her a star just by the fact that he knows what buttons to push. One of the things that I thought about when I watched this movie this go round is um you you must have actually met and encountered people like this through your career because oh, yeah. like the guy's basically a fucking gatekeeper and yeah, he's like, like a, they're he's, all over he's a tr- he's a trumpy a true trumpian new york character like he's a sh- yeah. <laughs> he's an absolute bullshit artist um he has no he has no interest in the the longevity of of credibility or or being taken seriously on any of that stuff he is convinced that american culture is about fads and he is cultivating and churning them out as fast as he can to earn those those first hit dollars, you know. Um, and he it, it's a perf- it's a perfect antagonist because he uh, not only does he not only does he represent like the sort of top layer of money in America, but he he also represents the nothingness of it. Like he does not have an ethos other than you know get what I want right now before it's not hot anymore. And, and this is Barry Gordy telling people about this guy. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like you're, 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 this is, this is an educated perspective on this character. Um, and of course, when I got into like, a, it was approximately 10 years later after seeing the film, when I was about, uh, you know, or in my early twenties or 20 or 19 or 20, where I started bumping into the types of Eddie Arcadians who were the gatekeepers at clubs in New York city and who came down to see bands and would talk about how they signed this guy to a management deal and, or this girl or whatever, you know, and, um, they, they turned out to be perfectly represented by Eddie Arcadian. Like that was, that's him. That's, that's who you're, that's exactly correct. You know, um, the dialogue is, is snappy, but I actually, I actually did have a guy say to me one time, a guy who I can't name because he's relatively well known. Uh, he said to me when I first finished the first initial demos of Teenage Dirtbag and was bringing them around to the people who I'd had relationships with in other projects, because I was in a bunch of bands before I ever formed my own. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I just kind of did the rounds with the people who I'd worked with in the past. And this one guy who was a hit maker and and still is, uh, literally said to me, this is how it works, kid. I fuck you, you fuck somebody else. Oh God. That's a quote. That's a quote. That's a quote, man. I'm not, I'm not making that up. And that was, and that, that was, a st- that wasn't so astonishing having sort of like, Oh, you're Eddie Arcadian. <laughs> like, right. Like that's you. You're, yeah. you're, did you, have you seen the last dragon? <laughs> you know, and I have, I have to thank Barry Gordy for warning me about those people as much as I have to thank Ian Mackay from Fugazi who I never personally met, but whose ethos in general was coming up through the late 80s and early 90s. Um, There's a terrible group of people out there in music and you don't want to have anything to do with them. And look at Fugazi's whole methodology is to stay away from those people. Um, And, you know, you'd be surprised how close the two camps were in in the music industry just in terms of rubbing elbows like these are two diametrically opposed um you know ideas about how to do this and they're they bump they were bumping up in against each other right in front of me all the time the eddie arcadians and the ian mckay's you know um not that there was any hypocrisy happening but there was there was definitely definitely a sort of like like the the Eddie Arcadians knew knew about and were drawn to the power of the of the Ian McKay's and the Ani DeFranco's, you know, um, because they were threatened by it, perhaps, or also thought that they were saying to themselves, "Well, they they think this about themselves. They're all ethical about this now, but wait until they 
get into like the money game with me. I'll, 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 I'll eat them alive, you know? So they hung around, they kept it, they kept in touch. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. this is like, uh, this, the film, the film early on in my life was important for sort of abstractions and gut instinct kind of stuff. And then later on it was like, holy shit, this is like a guide to how to not get screwed in the music industry, <laughs> you know? So I that's, still, fe- I still feel that way about it. That's really interesting. So, I mean, the more you were talking about that, the more sense it made. And I think it really, it, it's going to definitely enrich my sense of how this movie works to ask maybe an obvious question that you've already sort of orbited around. Like, um, do you see Bruce Leroy's journey as sort of the ideal of the artist's journey that you're searching for something that only you can find and requires a kind of immersion dedication that takes you away from everything around you? A hundred percent. And also without any kind of guarantee of a like glory moment payoff, like it might not work out, you know, and you, and you, you, you know that you have to know that that's part of the of the will to, to pursue it. So like, you know, well, just every artist has to, if they're, if there's, if they're really going to wind up doing this, I think they have to face the idea that they might not have any sort of like, um, uh, vindication or they, or they might be personally vindicated, but not publicly vindicated. And yeah, you might meet the master and it's just a fortune cookie machine. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or you might, or you might, you might realize that it's like, it, I don't know. There, 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 the sliding scale of how many directions uh, it can go. If you're, if you're doing this is, is too vast for me to talk about in a, in a pod for anybody to talk about. But the, this, the, I think, I think Bruce Leroy knows that he might not, ever get there if he's still going you know that's a kind of a that's you could call it stubborn or i don't think that's necessarily stubbornness i think that that's just that um i would call it devout yeah i'm i'm sitting here going artists man because some of the things that you're saying are very similar to things i hear from connor about writing yeah you know or other authors we've had a show yeah authors you're talking about writing books Writing novels. Yeah. Oh my God! The the author faces faces the hardest version of this, in in my opinion. The author, the author and the magician, I think both kind of like share like the heaviest burden with this because books and magic only have moments of cross cultural pollination. In, in, there is no steady stream of it like there is in music, you know. Um, music and television are, have a more regular uh, penetration of, of pop culture, but books, books and magic are like, <laughs> like, what's, like, how often is there like a, like, you know, like a, um, uh, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius moment, you know, where, where, people know a title of a book, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a, yeah, no, unless I think it gets made into great. a film. A, yeah. I mean, that's the first time I've heard um, writing novels compared to doing magic, but I actually love that analogy that they're both sort of archaic in some ways and culturally marginal, arguably, but also um, mean a lot to the people who care about them, uh, both as audience and creators. That's a great, that's, I'll think about that one. That's a good one. Yeah, the ratio the ratio of dedication to uh, vindication is <laughs> is <laughs> incredibly yeah. lopsided. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in this movie, there's sort of a uh, uh, I don't know what you'd want to call it a contradiction. On the on the one hand, it is it's it's a it's a fable about. Uh, uh, you know, trusting your own path and and not having it get sideswiped by the money assholes, if you will. But on the other side of things, and just as true, this movie is a vehicle to show a debarge video. Yeah, and I didn't have a problem with that. Um, okay. <laughs> I just, it, it, it felt like it's, Leah, don't, don't compromise your dreams 
by DeBarge was sort of the vibe I got. And it it, it sort of caught me off guard because I'm not used to having films designed specifically to showcase a band in the way that this one clearly was. Right. Um, well, so the funny thing about that is, is that, is that the, the, the music of the, of the film um, is not, for me, it was, it was the Willie Hutch tune, uh, The Glow. Um, sure. The, 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 the sort, sort of the uh, pinnacle uh, tune. And it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's made for the film. It's a really good song. It's oddly long and, and edited strangely because of its uh, need to be, be basically it's a score, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the elder barge stuff is, it's cool. It's super cool. But in the context of the film, and I think even Barry Gordy knew this, that he needed a deeper, like they needed a deeper dive than just a vehicle for a, for one of their artists. Um, that's not the that's not the big deal you know and i think that like there are disney movies that where where they like you know where it's the big deal is the is the song or something you know and sure and i that the last dragon never struck me as that that type of musical movie i think it was the character was the big deal you know always the big deal um and that and that allegory of like don't let the enough don't let anything not not misunderstanding, not loneliness, not not the fact that you might never be vindicated. Don't let anything stop your yourself, you know, discovery. So, you know, I that I I didn't I didn't really let that let that one affect the way I felt about it at all. Um I know um just from research, honestly, that your seventh album uh, is an attempt to reach back to like eighties heavy metal and connect to a lot of the things that were important to you is when you were getting into music, when you were younger, what were you into when you were younger? It was just sort of an unfinished question. The short, the short answer is I was into everything, but my, but my early teen identifiers were progressive and heavy metal. Um, and, and the hip hop, that kind of matched it. So like I was listening to Metallica and public enemy in 1987 and 1988 when, and justice for all came out and, and, um, you know, we, we, the, the, in New York, um, it was much uh, first. I, I think it was easier to absorb the quality hip hop and, and rap at the same time that you were absorbing metal uh because there was crossover there was anthrax and public enemy there was um run dmc and and aerosmith is a good one but that's not the one i'm really talking about you know um Mm -hmm. i'm more or less talking about the fact that like that like kerry king played on a bunch of def jam records you know um and that slayer was was close to um because of the label they were signed to. There was a, there was a cross pollination there in these two relatively new forms of music. Um, and I was identifying with that stuff, uh, at the same time. And early on, very early on, I remember feeling excited about, and that, that, um, that uh, racial integration made me feel enthusiastic about the future. It made me feel good about stuff. It made me feel like, um, that like that some shitty time in the past was was ending and that we were coming into a new time um and that music was a place where you could enjoy that ex- ex- expressly enjoy that f- side of it so uh fishbone was a huge uh early on for me um and if i felt as though the it was like initially we were part, when I say we, it was like the, the 80s was a time where the really interesting music was integrating very fast, um, which I thought was great. So, um, you know, it has 
since not really unfolded as well as I thought it would when I was 14. <laughs> you know? um, that is an amazing understatement. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I like to think that we're, that this is just like a sort of a like like a little stupid dip that the baby boomers are forcing us to go through on their nostalgia trip to the grave, you know? Um, yeah. But, but, uh, but like um, – but I still feel that enthusiasm, that that enthusiasm about integration, and in, the, in particular in the nerdcore movement, since you're a science fiction podcast, you must have sure. um, talked to some of these people. Uh, nerdcore is still is still there, I think, um, in an integrated art form uh, of music, anyway. Um, but uh, you know, uh, it was progressive rock, heavy rock heavy metal, hip hop. Um, and I also like, like Prince, like super Prince, like anything Prince did. I was like, Oh my God, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, which was weird because there was a time during like 86, 87, 88, where Prince's work was sort of like lumped together with, um, like culture club and, uh, sort of stuff from England that was the the that would have been in my in my hometown would have been the focus of homophobia. Oh yeah, so I remember that very well. Yeah, so um, so there was a, also a, this talking about integration of cultures and lifestyles. There was a danger in 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 being a Prince fan and also bring, being a Metallica fan or an ACDC fan um, or an Iron Maiden fan. There was a danger in that because there was the the you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna candy coat it. Like a lot of metalheads were homophobic back then. Oh yeah. You know, it was yeah. a thing. So um I think it's just a measure of a lot of people being homophobic back then and their parents giving them shitty ideas about stuff. But but the the um you know the I it may seem like I'm talking about political stuff a lot. I'm actually just talking about identity stuff because when you grow up you find your musical identity especially if you're going to become a musician, I think it's way more intense and all of this stuff becomes like, this is the DNA of it, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And, and it makes perfect sense to me. I want to ask you though, uh, about this movie, are you a big martial arts guy in general, in movie form or otherwise? Nope. Uh, I did. <laughs> I, I love it. I did, um, take, I took uh, Kung Fu for about uh, four years during high school um, while I was also on the wrestling team. And nice. <laughs> um, so I am familiar with like a lot of martial arts stuff and fighting forms in general. I never pursued any of it as like uh, an ongoing aspect of my life but like i have to say like once you learn how to wrestle you know how to wrestle like that doesn't go away <laughs> you know um sure and as and as long as you stay stay kind of fit and stretched out you can still do all that stuff but but the um but it never it never became like a centerpiece of my life it was just like a sort of activity when i was a kid um and it was the uh it took the vast minority of my time as a kid um to do that stuff because really what I was doing in every spare moment was I was playing guitar, you know, that's what, that's it. That's all I was really doing. Um, and you know, it was, I went to a, a boy's school that was, uh, quite a ways away from my, um, home and I, uh, mm -hmm. wound up spending a lot of time, you know, by myself. Um, Oh, my dog is barking in the background. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's all good. We've had that before with our dogs. No worries. <laughs> yeah. Like we all have dogs and it all happens. So it's cool. Right. So I, so I, that, 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 uh, that time was alone was spent playing guitar. Like really, like I used to, I used to wake up on Saturday mornings and have like a pair of sweatpants that was for guitar, like for playing along to like, and justice for all and like, and like ride the lightning and ACDC and rush. And, and like, you know, it was just like, I had a uniform for it, you know? So that's, that's incredibly cool. I mean, I, I want to ask you this, uh, something we talked about, you know, the struggle and not knowing the vindication. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but I'm very curious in your career, 
uh, early on, like, was there um, a period when you were like convinced it was not going to work out any meaningful career sense, but you just sort of kept going and had that, like that incredible defiance. Was there a period like that for you? Yeah. That period was from, uh, 1993 when I really started, uh, playing clubs in New York city, uh, with other bands to 1999 when we got our record deal. So it was about seven years, um, during which I was, uh, uh, stubbornly pursuing things. I was in college uh, from 91 until 95 at the University of Scranton, Pennsylvania, and I entered uh, in as a pre-med major. Um, and I did two <laughs> years as pre-med, but then I uh, uh, failed biochemistry because I um, I didn't know this at the time, but I have uh, a pretty wicked reading disability. Um, I have a what's known as a rotated nystagmus um misdiagnosed as a kid uh finally diagnosed when i was about 20 or 19 and um and it makes it really hard to read things that are long um so like if the page is narrow and it's a narrow column it's much much easier to keep to keep my place but if it's like a wide novel page or or a textbook page it's i have to like hold my finger under in, the, in order to not lose my place. And even then, I will lose my place no matter what. So it took me, it takes me a, a torturous long time to read things. And um, even though I still kind of do do a lot of reading, but um, but I have to like stop from time to time. Anyway, I failed biochem and, and uh, got diagnosed with this, with this thing that I'd had my whole life. And then I kind of like took my science credits that I had earned a lot of and switched over to um, uh, history and psych. And, um, I enjoyed that a lot more anyway. So the, it was the, it was the long peptide chain equations in, in biochem that stopped me dead in my tracks. I could, <laughs> Man, I could yikes. not keep track. I just kept making mistakes. I couldn't do it. I, I was so full of mistakes that I just couldn't, I couldn't finish. So, um, at that point, I also kind of like it was like, it just, I think that was middle of my sophomore year in, in college or the beginning, maybe the first semester of my sophomore year in college. I, at that point, I kind of had this like moment of like, you know, all you've ever done is music. Just do music. Let's see if, let's see music. Let's see what that's like. So I started um, answering ads in the Village Voice. Uh, the Village Voice got to, got to uh, Pennsylvania a day late, so I remember it was there on Wednesday mornings at, at, in the cafeteria, and I would grab it and answer all the ads for guitarists, and then I would like spend the next few days driving down to Manhattan, which was two and a half hours away, and auditioning. And um, I wasn't really, I had kind of dropped out of the social scene in in Scranton too, like a little bit. I got a job on the weekends delivering pizzas and I was like auditioning for bands. And I think a lot of people who I, people I lived with and stuff, they didn't really know my schedule very well. Like I, I was like kind of, uh, detached from, from what was going on there, uh, socially. And I was already a sense that I wasn't going to do that. So that, that I would count that as the period where I started playing CBGBs and under Acme and Kenny's castaways and the lion's den and like, um, the sort of, shitty clubs on the Lower East Side in, in the early 90s. Or, and then uh, kept bouncing in and out of bands all through that time. And it was around 94, 95 that I began to write my own stuff for my own project. But knowing full well, I wasn't going to show anybody that stuff for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was like a, there was a laboratory being cultivated while doing other band stuff, trying to graduate college on time and all that stuff. and. It was, it was intense. I was, I was like very, very busy and very sort of like private. Um, was like, I was like my Unabomber period. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I, I'll put you on the spot here since, you know, we're, we're primarily a, a sci-fi podcast. Um, though I'm very glad we detoured to this cause it is, it's a cool movie. Like I like to see oh, it. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. I'm very glad about that. But I want to ask you, uh, is there any sci-fi in either book or movie or whatever form that is, that you'd like? Um, I think my, I'll, I'll just go through a few of my favorite sci-fi, uh, um, Primer. I love Primer. That's a great oh, nice. sci-fi film. Uh, Moon. 
with Sam Rockwell is another yes. one. Really yeah. nice. I love that movie. Um, what's the story with the sequel on that, by the way? Is that happening? That's a great question. We're going to have to ask our, our sound editor because he's the one who's really into Moon. But I really I need another yeah. one of those, man. I, I definitely need another follow-up on that. Um, uh, I really like that weird Tom Cruise movie. Uh, is it uh, The Edge of Tomorrow? Is that what it's called? Oh, man. I don't think I've seen that one. Pete, have you seen what? that one? Really? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh my God! You've you've not seen that? It's uh, I think it's, I think her name is Emily Blunt, and and uh, and they they are facing some sort of uh, alien invasion. Um, he gets killed on his first mission, but during his death, he absorbs the blood of one of these creatures, and he can now travel through time and reset his day. Uh, as long as he's, he dies before the, he, before the end of the next one, it's kind of, so he keeps dying and keeps living. I, I can't believe you've not seen this movie. It's pretty, it's pretty solid sci-fi action flick. Um, well, that's a strong wreck. Let's take, check it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I've the, uh, the movie mute, which is available on Netflix right now is considered the spiritual sequel to moon mute M U T E. Correct. Oh, wow. The spiritual sequel to Moon. Okay, so that so meaning that um, uh, it's not it's not by the same director or writers, but it's like in the style of you mean? I guess. Um, I think it's the same director. It's just uh, like he's doing a trilogy of themed movies. Oh, okay, okay, mute. Okay, no, noted. Now, now I get to rent that. Thank you. Um, Absolutely. A Gattaca, I think Gattaca is a really good sort of like Brave New Worldy kind of movie. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, um, what else? I you could probably just call it a sci-fi thriller, but Jacob's Ladder, um, the original with Tim Robbins. That that, that yes, uh, I think it's Adrian Lin directed that. The guy who did Nine and a Half Weeks or 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 one of those movies or. Uh, yeah, did he do nine and a half weeks or did he do? Um, well, anyway, he that 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 movie is incredible. Jacob's Ladder is a masterpiece. Um, what else? Sci-fi. I'm not crazy about Star Wars. Uh, I have to say, like the franchise was a little weak on me in the in the first, like when I was a kid. Like it wasn't as powerful as the Wrath of Khan, for example. Um, sure. The Star Trek world was much more appealing for, for me. Uh, I thought, 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 thought that there were deeper, better stories being told in Star Trek than there were in Star Wars. Um, well, and you, you got hit with the with the next wave of those terrible movies when you were in college, too. Like thinking yeah, well, about I was how out this of college. Out. I think it was nine, 98, maybe, or 97 when The Phantom yeah. Menace came out. Um, I remember I went to see that in, in Union Square in, in Manhattan and... Uh, we were all so excited and the air getting let out of the balloon early on was that movie's weird because it does contain the best saber battle of the whole entire series. Um, Yeah. Which is absolutely thrilling. And Darth Maul is a wonderful villain, but, but there was like, it's almost like there's two movies that you have to watch in order to get to it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and one has pod racing. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, well, the, the pod racing was just like, okay, this is for the kids. I get it. Um, Jar Jar, I remember in the theater thinking, I can't understand what Jar Jar is actually saying. Like, I missed a lot of his dialogue just because it was so distracting. It was like, what? Well, what? and he just felt like a minstrel show alien to me. Like, I was incredibly uncomfortable with his affect and everything they had him do. It's just like, why would you make the choices to put this one out here? Like, well, it, 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 well the, the other thing is, it's like they pair they pair this inc- this inc- like goofy, uh, like made to be dumb character with like one of the finest Jedi's of all time, you know, Qui Gon, mm-hmm. and. It, the partnership just doesn't make any sense. It like it's kind of like, what are they doing? What's going on here? Like, what, wait a minute, uh, I don't get it. You know, it was a, there was a lot of I don't get it at the beginning, and of course, th- you have to understand that sitting in a theater watching that for the first time, people still trusted George Lucas. Yeah. So it was like, 
okay, this it has to make sense. This is going to make sense. Somewhere had that you had faith, you know. And then it was like you got to the saber battle, and you were like, that was amazing. What was with all the weird politics and stupid character <laughs> stuff? Wait, that never got fixed. Oh no! <laughs> like, it was just like it's just kind of like it's just, just kind of the, the air like getting let out of the balloon and walking outside and thinking like. What did we just see? Like, was that a Star Wars movie? That wasn't a Star Wars movie. What the fuck was that? Um, <laughs> it took a while. It took. There was a lot of confusion about it, and then like, it, it just like I don't know the the ter- the, the terrible caricature stuff was just I, uh, over time was like, oh fuck this guy, you know. <laughs> I I am not proud of it. But I, after the end of that movie, I went and shrieked at the manager, literally. Really? I mean, it's a childish thing to do. Wait, wait, but, at the, like when you were a kid, how old were you? Oh, God, 30? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, blame the film for your regression. <laughs> Exactly. You stole my childhood, you, you son of a bitch. do this to me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean. And then, you know, I, I, I wised up, like, as soon as, I, as soon as I understood how bad that one sucked. And it took a few days. It was just, like, it was settling in. Like, did I just get ripped off on a Star Wars movie? Like, it just, it didn't make any sense. <laughs> like, like, cult, like, culturally, like, I know, I wasn't, like, I loved the, la- the, the Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back in the first one, New Hope. They're all, they're all... Great, and they were in my memory as great moments, but they weren't like Star Trek. Like they didn't. I, right. I didn't want to watch them on TV. You know, I didn't like want to follow up what's going on with the Gene Roddenberry threads and in, in you know the Next Generation. Like it wasn't like that. It, it and and I went in thinking, oh, this is going to be cool, and it was not. And it took days. It took days to understand that it was bad. Sure. Yeah. I- I, I I mean that makes sense to me. I hadn't didn't really thought about it at the time. I just remember me losing my mind. But you're right. It really didn't. Uh, okay, now now I'm being dramatic. But the level of betrayal <laughs> that I that I felt took a while to set in. And I mean, honestly, that movie broke a lot of people's brains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank God Twitter didn't exist back then. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Um I gosh, this has been this has been really great. I I think we should probably uh give you Brendan a chance to uh plug the newest stuff that you're working on. Like what's what's going on with you uh, now? Okay, so um well, we're working on two things at the same time. Uh our first album, the one released in 2000 with Teenage Dirtbag on it, was uh recorded on uh, sort of a transitional format called DA78HR, uh, which is a high resolution, uh, high eight style video cassette looking thing. That's about three inches wide. And you recorded it onto uh, four machines that were uh, synced together uh, in order to get 32 tracks, each machine having eight tracks. So times four is 32. And this format, um, was not long for this world because it was an early digital high res format, right? So mm-hmm. um, it only lasted for about four years as a popular way to multi-track, and then it was gone. And we sent all four copies, uh, the primary and the three backup copies of these master tapes, four, four in each set, to Sony for... Um, for remixing and they sent them out everywhere and I never got any back. So the master tapes seem to be lost. Um, and that format now, I mean, Uh. that, that format is like, is like, even if you found them, you probably couldn't play them back. You might not even find four machines from that era that still work properly with which to do it. So not to mention the tape was really not high quality and probably deteriorated as digital videotape, you know. So um, I think that the master tapes for our first record are lost to time. And the project we've been in for the last two years is to try and recreate them. Now, I had 
uh, the sort of penultimate set of master tapes back in 2014. I got nervous and I brought them, the only ones I had, in to be archived at, uh, at Dream Hire in New York City, which has since closed down, I believe. Um, but uh, I seem to have gotten in under the wire on getting the last, the last before final set of master tapes documented into Pro Tools and then into other digital formats. So we have, like, for Teenage Dirtbag, for example, we have the original drums, the original bass, the original acoustic guitars, some of the original electric guitars, some of the percussion, and only a blip of the vocal. Um, so most oh, wow. of me singing that song is gone. But what we've done is we've taken those tapes, uh, what was left of that last set, and we threw them into a new format, uh, a modern format, and we uh, started rebuilding them. So we replaced the drum performance first and made sure it lined up with the bass performance. And then we did the bass performance after that. So one by one, we replaced these elements. Um, I still have the gear that we used to record it, the preamps and things. So we kept true to the original tonality. Uh, we fixed some problems that were part of our not knowing what we were doing back then that the mixing engineer had to fix. So we kind of, we rebuilt it and uh, we are re-recording the entirety of our first record um, for re-release on the 20th anniversary in 2020 um, using this method. Also um, over the years on four track demos and, and things um, we have had, I've written and we've kind of cultivated new songs that don't, that didn't belong on any record, they kind of sounded like they were from the first one. And there's like a dozen of those that we're going to put, or we're going to try and build a 20-song re-release of our first record for 2020 on the 20th anniversary. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that we're doing right now, is this, this archive and rebuild and re-release project. And then, Wow, that's quite ambitious and cool. Wow. Yeah, it's bananas. I'm doing it by myself. So, oh my god. <laughs> so the, no, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Uh, our bass player is helping me. Whoever's in in town and not doing another gig at the time is coming and working on it with me. So it's oh, everybody's involved. But, um, but the uh, uh, other thing is our seventh album, the one you mentioned, that sort of like harkens to the metal days. And um, it was important that I say that I what I'm not trying to sort of resurrect the metal vibes from the eighties. And I don't think that, I don't think that that music can, can translate now, but I was really into the sounds like the sound of Justice for all that record sounded like it just fucking sucked the air out of the room, man. It was so concussive and seemed like it had like inverted uh, ambience, meaning that it made the room sound drier than it was not more ambient, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and I thought, I always thought that was like, oh my God, that's so cool. They like created vacuum music, you know, <laughs> it, and it's, yeah. it's the, the punchiness of it is so much more profound and visceral because of that, I think. And I thought like, what are, what are those sounds? Like, how do they do that? And just from an engineering perspective, I wanted to explore that because I don't think anybody's done it and it changed the face of metal forever. You know, there are no, there's no pulse of yep. the maggots without, um, blackened. You know, like you can't you can't have Slipknot or Pantera or any of the cool shit that's happened since without that record. And I don't mean Metallica. I mean that record, the way that it sounds. So, you know, I, I've been fascinated by what metal did back then and how hard it must have been to achieve that because it's it's kind of referenceless. It doesn't there's no, nothing sounds like that before it. It's totally, totally new. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that their bass player had died. They didn't have time to get a new bass player worked into the band properly. So the arrangements and the songs were crafted by two guys, by, by you know, James and, and Lars. And I, a lot of Metallic fans have a problem with that. I don't. That's what the circumstance they were dealing with at the time. And I think they did a great job. <laughs> you know, like they did their best. Yeah. So, um, and Kirk Hammett obviously is, kicks ass on that record. But I'm, what I'm saying is, is like, that's my favorite Metallica record. And Justice for All is this, this point of referenceless genius that just kind of happened because of circumstance and, and changed everything, 
Wow. Okay. Those products sound really exciting. And like, I am learning a lot about music since I know very little about it. So thank you for that. Also, sure. <laughs> um, any, anything else we want to drop in here? I feel like this is probably a good, a good time to leave it. It's been a great discussion, but, uh, um, well, I mean, is it, so, so aside from mute, are there any sci-fi good sci-fi movies? Like I love the movie arrival. Can you please mm-hmm. recommend something like that, that I have not had the time to hear of or, or see? That's interesting. Arrival on the spot. Going yeah. the other way. I'm trying to think. Like, um, have you? Are you familiar with uh, both Annihilation, the movie, and the books, and or the books? No, no. Okay. Well, I would check out Annihilation. Um, the movie came out early 2018, and if you're so inclined, Jeff Vandermeer's trilogy of books that begin with Annihilation, called the Southern Reach trilogy, also very good. But I would check that one out. Um, I think that like. Villeneuve, who did Arrival, we know that he has a Dune coming out fairly soon. No so way. His, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. New Dune coming. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we're looking forward to that. And I think also um, Arrival-esque. Oh, there's one more I was thinking of. Oh, dude, yeah. you got to do Love, Death, and Robots. Oh, that yeah. So uh, if you want fun, Netflix Netflix has a, has a, sci- a series of sci-fi shorts that are just adapted short stories they've taken adapted for screen, and they're just kind of one-offs. And they're very brief, like 15 minutes, which I think is a great virtue. That's something you can just watch very briefly. They uh, tried to make it like heavy metal. Oh, yeah, really? Metal you know what I watched yeah. last night that made me feel like that? Mandy. Have you seen Mandy? No, I haven't. I have uh, seen with, Mandy. I, with, yeah, go ahead. With Nick Cage. It's a horror flick. It's like a murder murder romp kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's I'm not really into horror, but the, I watched it because it, I heard a lot of things. This is totally psychedelic, like otherworldly um, sort of like supernatural murder story that Nick Cage is in. And it's really, it's really strange. It's very good. I'm not sure I'd watch it again. Cause it was so violent and heavy and that doesn't always do it for me, you know? So sure. Um, but did you, have you seen sorry to bother you? Yes. That is a great one as well. Yeah. That's one of my yeah. favorite sort of new sci-fi, like off the beaten path kind of weirdo movies. Um, that's yeah, a great talk film. about a purist. Boots Riley is a, is a purist in every sense. So <laughs> salute to <Right>. him. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I'd say uh, from my end, thanks so much, man. This has been really great. And uh, yeah, yeah, we <laughs> just thank you. We loved having you on. Like uh, uh, in, in the future, like if, if we hit a Star Wars movie and we want somebody to help us hack on it or, you know, if... <laughs> Yeah, you know we we we'd love to talk to you again. This has been a good experience. Well, if you ever need some like weirdo hot take or something for one of your podcasts, I'll just throw in a sentence or whatever you need and just <laughs> and text it to you. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, thanks, man, and good luck with all those ambitious projects. I can't wait to see those turn out. Yeah, thanks to you guys as well for having me. I appreciate it. I had a good time. It was cool. Cheers. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Down me Cause I